Well, this past Friday, we closed out our Christmas season with the Feast of the Epiphany, um, and our prayer book calls that the Manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles. We did have a little Mass on Friday, by the way. Um, We're trying to do our uh, feast days that happen during the week on the feast day more often, so uh, please keep keep note of those, because it's a good time to be able to do those. But uh, the Epiphany is, of course, when we commemorate the wise men or the magi bringing gifts to the young Jesus, as we read about in the second chapter of St. Matthew. So uh, just as God sent a miraculous star to uh, bring the pagan Gentile magi to the Christ child, so God has also sent the light of the world, our Lord Jesus, to bring all people to himself. The, the big theme of the Epiphany as we celebrate it is that not only is our Lord Jesus the Jewish Messiah, but he's also the Savior of the whole world. So that's what we really focus on. Now that, that, that theme of the manifestation of Christ to the Gentiles through the wise men, um, that is the main Epiphany theme these days. But as far as we can tell, the earliest celebrations of the feast commemorated a whole bunch of events in the early uh, life of Jesus, the early part of his ministry, including his birth in some places. They celebrated Christmas on the Epiphany in some places. Um, the baptism of the Lord looms large in, uh, in early Epiphany celebrations, especially in the Eastern Church, his early miracles, um, all sorts of things happening in that early part of Jesus' life. Well, here in the West, what we eventually did is we kind of spread out those commemorations over the first few weeks of the Epiphany Tide season. And so today, on the first Sunday after the Epiphany, we remember the Lord's childhood appearance in the temple, as we read about in our gospel today. Let's go ahead and read that again. Luke 2, 41 through 52, page 110 in the prayer book. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions." And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So this gospel passage is remarkable in that it is the only canonical depiction of our Lord Jesus between his infancy and the beginning of his ministry around age 30. Now, I'm sure that St. Luke had a very good reason for including this story in his narrative, and the Holy Spirit has a very good reason for inspiring him to do so, but that reason isn't super clear in the text itself. It doesn't really tell us why this story is there. And people have often wondered at certain aspects of this story. There are some confusing things in here. For example, why didn't Jesus let his mother and Joseph know where he was going? His actions don't seem to be quite ideal for a dutiful son. 
Alternatively, knowing who Jesus was, why does Mary appear to rebuke him when they find him? She should know better, shouldn't she? And why didn't they check up on him until he had been missing for a whole day in the first place? None of us would do that with our kids, I think. (laughs) From our perspective today, their actions don't seem to be quite ideal for dutiful parents. But as natural as these questions are, I think they're missing how large the fulfillment of duty looms in the story. As the venerable Melville Scott, who was a late 19th century archdeacon in Stafford, he points out in his devotional commentary on the church here, which is a great book if you can get a hold of the reprint. He, he, he says, the epiphany season is the devotional and practical commentary on the incarnation as the revelation of human duties. So in other words, what he's saying here is that the gospel lessons during the epiphany weeks They show us various important aspects of Jesus' character as the perfect man. And then the epistle lessons show us how we can have a similar character to that of Jesus. And finally, the collects point, they put the desire for that character into our prayers. Now, from the beginning of today's gospel, we see the Holy Family fulfilling their duty towards God as they make pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover feast Um, as is commanded in the law of Moses. And in fact, when you really look at a strict reading of the Torah, of what Moses commanded, um, neither Mary nor Jesus were obligated to make such a journey at this point because it was only binding on adult Israelite men. Nevertheless, from what we see here, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover, What we see here is that Joseph evidently saw the importance of the entire family worshiping God and making sacrifice as they remembered how God rescued their ancestors from Egypt. This pious custom that Mary and Joseph are observing here, that's the main feature of the story that the reformers tended to uh, emphasize. They said, look at what Mary and Joseph did. Um, we, We should be like that as well. The Holy Family here is in Jerusalem to fulfill their duty to God. And when Jesus is found, he tells his mother that they should have known he would have been about his father's business in his father's house. As the Son of God sent by our Heavenly Father, Jesus had a duty toward the things of God. His sonship is a divine sonship. His mission is a divine mission. As Venerable Scott points out, quote, from birth to death, Christ manifested the Father. This was his own summary of his life, and it could not be more complete. When we look forward in the Gospels at the rest of Jesus' life, we see that many of the most important events and teachings during his ministry happen in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. We can therefore see today's story as something of a foreshadowing of Jesus' future ministry. Notice, for example, how he's among the teachers. Our text says the doctors. During his ministry, he's going to be teaching very directly during his adult ministry. But here, he's listening and asking questions. Nevertheless, the astonishment of the doctors, the astonishment of those teachers, indicates that Jesus was teaching them, even as he assumed the posture of a child who's learning. Another 19th century divine, John Henry Blunt, he points out that Nicodemus or Gamaliel may have been among those present. 
at the time, because just doing the math, this would have been around the time they were becoming leading rabbis among the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem uh, folks. Yet even as Jesus is fulfilling his duty towards God by being about his father's business, we also see him in our text fulfilling his duty toward his earthly, pre earthly parents, especially at the end of the story. We read, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them, but his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Venerable Scott observes that Jesus became, quote, the carpenter of Nazareth before he became the savior of the world. That time in Nazareth was important. We don't see those first 30 years of Jesus' life but we can be assured that they were preparation for the three years of ministry that we read about in the Gospels. And the very fact that Jesus grew and that Jesus prepared, that shows us that growth and preparation are not functions of the fall. We don't have to grow because of the fall, because death entered the world. Rather, growth and preparation are inherent to human nature the way God designed it. We were meant, always meant, to grow, to learn, to prepare. Even Jesus does so in his humanity. Now, here we see Jesus giving us the perfect example of duty when he fulfills his duty towards God and his duty towards his parents, but he does much more than giving us a good example. Jesus' perfect life is much more than a mere example for us. Rather, by his perfect life, Jesus was proven to be, as our article says, the lamb without spot who, by sacrifice of himself once made, should take away the sins of the world. By fulfilling these duties, by keeping all of the thou shalts and refraining from all the thou shalt nots of God's law, Jesus was able to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. And then he goes beyond that. Through the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus also enables us in our duties. And we see this in our epistle reading from Romans 12. The, pa the passage begins, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And that, that idea of service there has a connotation of worship. As Christians, he's saying, our lives are to be sacrificial. We give up our fleshly desires to live a life pleasing to God. Now, just before taking communion um, in the liturgy, the priest will say on behalf of everybody present, and here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice unto thee humbly beseeching thee that we and all others who shall be partakers of this holy communion may worthily receive the most precious body and blood of thy son, Jesus Christ, be filled with thy grace and heavenly benediction, and made one body with him, that he may dwell in us and we in him. This passage in our liturgy is a direct allusion to today's epistle. Just as we're united to Christ, in him we're united to each other. Just as he sacrificed himself for our salvation, so we offer our lives back to God as a sacrifice of thanksgiving. But don't miss the therefore at the beginning of the passage. That therefore points us back to the previous discussion, really, that spans chapters 9 through 11 of Romans, 
where Paul discusses God's sovereignty, God's calling, how he calls us, how he chooses people, how that relates to ethnic Israel, and how God's calling speaks to those epiphany themes of Christ manifesting himself to the Gentiles and bringing them into the family. Romans 11, verses 30 through 36, which is what comes immediately before our epistle, this is what it says. For as ye in times past have not believed God, yet now have obtained mercy through Israel's unbelief, even so have these also now not believed that through your mercy they may also obtain mercy. For God hath concluded them all in unbelief that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches of both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, we don't have time to get into the details on what St. Paul says about Israel in these several chapters. But suffice it to say that in this passage, God is giving us a glimpse at some of those hidden spiritual things. He's giving us a glimpse behind the curtain. And St. Paul concludes that long discussion with a a doxology, almost a little hymn of praise on the incomprehensible mind of God that can only lead to worship. God is so big in all of these hidden things, which all these hidden things show us. And frankly, that should confuse us. But what it really should do is drive us to worship. That's what St. Paul is saying. And because of that, he says, we are to present ourselves as a living sacrifice unto God. All of these things that God is showing us that we don't understand leads us to worship, which then leads us to be to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice as we get back to the beginning of our epistle. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Now let's move on in the passage, and we'll see the next part. He says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is a good, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man with the measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, so we being many are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. So we fulfill this sacrificial duty to God, And then our thinking is changed, being transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our thinking is changed, and we live differently from the world, and that that leads us to a life of humble grace. We fulfill our duty to God by living lives of holiness, by sacrificing those fleshly desires, which then leads us to be humble before each other so that we can fulfill our duty towards our fellow man, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Now, our collect reminds us that to properly fulfill these duties, we need to look to God just as we're empowered by Christ's example and by the gift of the Holy Spirit. We prayed this. O Lord, we beseech thee mercifully to receive the prayers of thy people who call upon thee and grant that they may both perceive and know what things they ought to do and also may have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As Venerable Scott points out, we ask God for an epiphany of knowledge. 
This comes generally in God's word. That's where we go for general knowledge, of course. But that particular, the particular way that's going to look in our individual lives, we're going to look to the Holy Spirit's leading on that as God enlightens our conscience and empowers us with his grace. Scott writes this. It is not enough to follow conscience until conscience has learned to follow Christ. God is our teacher as to duty. God is not only our teacher as to duty, but also our helper in our duty. Let us look to him in both these characters. And that is our prayer today on the first Sunday after the Epiphany. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.